Good morning and uh, happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Crypto with English. I'd like to introduce to you all a very special guest today. And today we're going to cover, uh, you know, diversity and how diversity is best expressed in the era of NFTs and the metaverse. So I'd like to introduce to you all Charmaine Short, founder of the Etiverse, and she's doing some very, very interesting things in this space. And these interesting things are consistent along the lines of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Charmaine, thank you very much for uh, coming on to the show today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> Could you uh, tell everybody uh, a little bit more about yourself and uh, introduce the Etiverse? How did you come up with the name? And of course, uh, what is the Etiverse about? Okay, right. So um, I've been a cryptocurrency enthusiast since 2019. And in 2020, uh, I started collecting NFTs. And that led me to meet a lot of artists, particularly a lot of women artists. And they found that they were having difficulty having their art seen and finding collectors to buy it. So a bunch of us got together and we set up a community called Women of Crypto Art, uh, Woka, uh, it's Hello Woka on Twitter. Um, and this helped people to actually um, club together and put on exhibitions in the metaverse and just to promote each other and support each other. And we turned it into a DAO. So it was like a cool Web3 organization but I was always having people coming to me sort of, you know, downhearted saying, look, I've been creating art and nobody's buying it. Nobody likes it. I'm going to give up. I'm going to go back to my day job. And, and I thought, well, you know, there's a real need for um, sort of professional marketing services for right. these NFT artists. So you have at the one end the sort of superstar NFT artists who, you know, they've made it, but there's like thousands of others that are still what you would call starving artists. So um, I am also a writer. I write about NFTs and I have a blog called Confessions of a Crypto Art Collector. And I write under the name Eta Totti. So... The name Etiverse actually came about by accident. So I was typing the word Metaverse one day and the I missed off the M and it just looked like Etiverse. And I thought, hey, I'm Eta. Right. I could just call it Etiverse. There you go. It, it kind of encapsulates um, everything that I do. Um, so NFTs, crypto, Metaverse, blockchain, you know, education, all these types of services. Right. Um, and what Etiverse does is we help onboard people to Web3. You know, I get lots of people, traditional artists, who will come to me and say, I really want to make NFTs, but I don't have a clue. I don't know what the blockchain is. I don't know how to set up a wallet. And, right. you know, uh, WOCA can help with all these things. We support new artists and onboard them into Web3. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds like a really great en endeavor, especially, you know, crypto, Web3 in general can be kind of a murky 
uh, you, you could say pond, so to say, because there's so much there. And there's not exactly a whole lot of clear indicators as far as where to start. Especially setting up a wallet can be almost a monumental task in, in, in some instances as well. So, you know, when, um, you know, I guess you could say starting at point A with your project, essentially um, almost serving as a portal or a, a gathering point for, you know, various female artists to, you know, come together to at least kind of get some more eyes, some more visibility um, on the uh, on the artwork, you know, on the on the collection. Do you feel that in this space, um, women in general, um, you know, still face a certain amount of obstacles that, let's say, still existed in traditional Web two tech or just the tech industry, generally speaking? Absolutely, yeah. So unfortunately, the sort of biases from the Web two art world have come across to Web3. And I know a lot of women artists who deliberately choose a sort of non-gender specific name for their artist name. And when they do that, everybody assumes they're a man <laughs> because there's a real bro culture <laughs> in yeah, sure. and NFTs. And the, the ladies who have a sort of non-gender specific name they tend to do better than the ones with an obviously female name. So it's, it's quite interesting. That is, that is. And, you know, uh, and, you know, this is just objectively speaking, my feeling is this. If it's good art, it's good art. I mean, I could, you know, regardless of the identity, uh, you know, of the, of, you know, of the artist, so to say. So why do you think the bro culture is still very, and by the way, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, and, and, you know, many of my guests, can certainly attest to this. There's still strong, you know, you could say, you know, indicators. There's still kind of strong elements of, of, of the, of the bro culture, so to say, you know, um, you know, in, in, in web three. And I'll tell you this, I'm certainly no proponent of the, uh, the bro culture. In fact, uh, <laughs> I certainly don't look or fit the stereotype. I look more like an extra from The Sopranos or Goodfellas, as far as as far as a lot of yeah. So as as I've been told, anyway, <laughs> is uh you know ver versus that. So why why do you feel that even in Web three, um, there is maybe a either conscious or an unconscious part to kind of keep more people out, including you know, uh, including women, because there's a lot of research that comes forth that, you know, nine out of 10, you could say major blockchain, Web3, NFT related projects are, you know, the funding, the vast majority of that funding still goes to, you know, majority or almost wholly, you know, male, you know, founding, you know, founding teams. Like I said, personally speaking, if I see a good piece of art, you know, regardless of who the artist is, if I like it, I'm getting it, you know, so to say that, but I'm just speaking for myself anyway. So um, do you think this is intentional or do you think this is just, I don't know, are we chalking this up to just human nature or unconscious bias? Do people just kind of want to be surrounded by like people and things like that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of unconscious bias. But on the other side, there's a lot of guys like yourself that are very aware of the imbalance and, you know, and would never dream of starting a conversation online with saying, hey, dude, hey, bro, when you don't know whether it's a man or a woman you're speaking to. So we are getting there. And 
I tend to, it depends how important the conversation is. If I just get a DM out of the blue saying, right. hey, bro, buy our NFT project, right. I probably just ignore it. But if someone's actually wanting to have a meaningful conversation with me, but they assume I'm a guy, I will correct them. I'll go, I'm not your bro. Yeah. <laughs> And, and they usually, you know, they're a bit embarrassed or whatever. And, you know, it, it turns out fine. And sometimes I think I should always correct people, but it just gets too exhausting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it, you know, a- absolutely. And I would at least think in, in 2022, uh, I think to assume that the artist is the bro, I think that's kind of a, a bridge too far. I mean, I think that's actually a gross you know, assumption there, so to say. Uh, and I think sometimes you can kind of get the idea of somebody's identity based on, let's say, their avatar and their and their profile and whatnot. I mean, simply put, I would just uh, address an email like, oh, good, good morning, good afternoon, or excuse me. I wouldn't say, hey, bro. And and maybe I think, <laughs> I think to, in all fairness to my cohorts on the East Coast, I think a lot of that bro culture was actually created in the west coast and i think there's a lot of like steve jobs wannabes <laughs> mixed up you know mixed up in that crowd here not here crowd there as as well not to say that there are you know bad actors you know in, in any part of the united states in tech so to say but a lot of that stuff did emanate from like the west coast palo alto uh you know type of uh i, I think type of culture where you know you, you had apple you had amazon you had you know, Google, and I think you kind of had the ecosystems around that. And that was all in, uh, you know, Palo Alto, Northern California, San Francisco type uh, type area. But by the way, I totally, um, you know, I totally agree. And I totally, you know, I could totally empathize with, uh, you know, with that sentiment. So speaking of the female artists, how many um, artists do you have under your wing in this uh, Ediverse project? Yeah, so um, within Walker, there's about 1,300 women. Wow. Um, and yeah, some of them are quite successful and they, they don't need to come to me for advice. Um, right. But myself and my business partner, Laura, uh, Laura Bolianos, she's um, she's based in Spain. So she's okay. great because she speaks perfect English and obviously she speaks perfect Spanish. Uh, she's from Costa Rica originally. So right. we help a lot of Hispanic women as well. I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but Laura's amazing. And so I've got the sort of NFT expertise uh, and she's got the marketing expertise. So we have like clients like a lady called Gala Marissa, who's an award winning Spanish NFT artist from Barcelona. She was a like an OG NFT artist. She right. has her art in a new Hollywood film called Fresh Kills. Right. But, she, but this, this lady is still struggling to get accepted on some of the NFT platforms like Super Rare. Oh, okay. Crazy because she is amazing. <laughs> so yeah. we, we try and put pressure on and say, look, that this lady has got great art and um, she's got a new project, which I think is in a reaction to the frustration that she feels. And it's called She Heals. And it's um, it's all about, it's like women, um, but they've got something on their head, either like an astronaut's helmet or a lampshade or a goldfish bowl or something. Right. So you can see the, the woman's body, uh, but not her face. And it sort of symbolizes how 
women are invisible and the challenges they face are sometimes not seen by anyone. So that's quite a quite cool way to sort of raise awareness um, for women to say, we're here. <laughs> Talk right. to us by our art. <laughs> right. And, and in terms of, um, you know, the art and the artists, and, you know, of course, you know, I'm not, you know, an art expert by any stretch of the imagination, but um, what type of, I guess, art styles do you have, like, in this, uh, you know, Etiverse, in this, essentially this giant organization? Like, uh, do you have, like, a comic and, you know, kind of animated type of art? Do you have, like, uh, people making almost classical, you know, maybe even Greco-Roman type of art or, you know, you know things like that? It's a total mix. Yeah, you have traditional fine artists who right. would um, you know, use paintbrushes and canvas and then they would like photograph it and make it into a digital NFT where you could either split it that the collector who buys it owns both the NFT and they get shipped the original yeah. or they could do it that you know one person could buy the NFT and a different person could buy the original canvas. There's all sorts of ways we have 3D uh, animators who do really cool things you know like you know vehicles spinning round or whatever and right. um, we have photographers as well as so a lot of very talented photographers are getting into nfts because i think photographers are totally switched on to the fact that if you take a really cool photograph you can you know multiply that into lots of editions sure. say do 100 editions and sign each one and that lends itself really well to the sort of structure of NFTs. So we have a few sort of one-of-one one artists, um, but also people who would produce, say, 100 editions as well. And we are working on another project just now, which is creating 10,000 NFTs called Lost Paradigms, right? So this, if, if anybody's like into NFTs, They've probably heard of cyber brokers. So this is a, a Josie Bellini uh, project. So she was a, an OG um, crypto artist, absolutely amazing young woman, you know, hats off to her. Right. And she created these cyber brokers. So my avatar on all my social media is a cyber broker that I own. And the cool yeah. thing about these NFTs is if you buy it, you own the IP. So you can then turn that into a brand like bored apes, you know, all this kind of thing. So anyway, the, the cyber broker community is very keen on expanding their ecosystem and encouraging members of the community to start their own uh, projects. So that's what Lost Paradigms is about. We're imagining what the metaverse might look like in cyber brokers world. Um, and we're going to give them away free to people who own a cyber broker NFT and other people can can buy them because Twitter banners um, are becoming a really popular thing in NFTs. And I think that's going to be the next trend. So, so we're right up there at the beginning. <laughs> Got it. And, um, you know, as far as these projects, you know, the underlying blockchain and technology that's used to, you know, either mint and otherwise present this. Uh, is this like an Ethereum ERC-20 or are you all using yes. Solana? Yeah. yeah, so when I, as a collector, I buy NFTs on various blockchains. And I started on Ethereum, and I think the premium, maybe get shot down for saying this, but I think the premium NFTs are all on Ethereum. So I 
I liked a, like a really old project called Rare Peppies. It was the green frogs. Oh, yes. I, I loved that, it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Lots of fun. Um, and I bought some on Ethereum. And I also bought some on Polygon, which is, you know, it's kind of like Ethereum. Right. And I bought them all on OpenSea. It's the biggest marketplace. But the ones that I bought on Ethereum are worth more than the ones I bought on Polygon. So it's exactly the same NFT, but just on a different chain. And the one that had like very low gas fees isn't worth as much. So maybe there's something in the you know exclusivity of having to pay high gas fees because people kind of attract attach value to something that's scarce and expensive don't they you know like Rolex watches or whatever right Um, and I think maybe there's that kind of uh, thinking behind the Ethereum NFTs but I've also got NFTs on uh, Tezos which is if anybody's getting into NFT collecting or even the creators if you can't afford the high gas fees on Ethereum or you want to buy really cheap art good quality art go to the Tezos blockchain. You can pick up a nice piece of art for like one Tez, which is about, I don't know what it's today, about $3. Amazing. And I think what what the creators do, because they're only getting $3 per piece of art, they'll mint 100 of this piece of art. So then they'll get like $300. So, you know, it all works out. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, absolutely great, and I think, in fact, yeah, the vast majority of projects are still on uh, on Ethereum. So you know, logically, it makes sense to uh, you know, you know, I guess you could say focus on that, focus on that market share. And you know, what would you what would you say to individuals, let's say critics and skeptics of NFTs, and you could say the broader, you know, uh, I guess you could say ecosystem industry of NFTs. Uh, it, you know, it, NFTs have had their time. It's kind of a little bit of a fad. You know, people, you know, are saying like, yeah, you saw crypto kind of crash this year. You know, uh, I, I think, uh, I, I think the, uh, the NFT, the NFT industry, I think they're kind of running out of sand in their hourglass. Like, what would you, what would you say to some of those, you know, critiques? I would flip it on its head and say, this is only the beginning. (laughs) So yeah, so art led the way with NFTs and it proved that there is a use case. But now you're finding NFTs with lots of utility. So if you bought, say, an NBA Topshop NFT or some sporting NFT, that could maybe get you sort of courtside seats to an actual in real life sporting event you know right. or entrance to a conference like gary v you know sure. it could get you if you had a board ape for example and um, you could maybe get into the um, you know the executive lounge at an airport just by flashing your wallet there's so much utility with nfts and the art is a bonus i would say if it's got nice art with it that's great and we're also finding um, musicians are now cottoning on to the fact like hey wait a minute I could get recurring revenue forever I don't need a record company I could just you know make my own musical NFT with you know like an album cover style art on the the NFT movie makers are getting into it 
you know, so you could own a piece of your favourite movie, like a, a clip from it. And it yeah. helps fund the movie industry. There's so many um, ways with NFTs. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the great things is that other than the fact that it allows greater visibility for artists who might not otherwise have such, it seems like NFT art and kind of this industry in general removes a lot of the traditional barriers um, to essentially participate in, you know, being an artist and, you know, trading fine art. Because I would imagine, and, you know, maybe you could add some more light to this, you have to often rely on a gallery. You have to split commissions and profits with that gallery. And I, and I think it, oftentimes, I think if you're an artist, despite, let's say, the quality of your artwork, let's say if you're going to be the next Picasso, or something like that, perhaps the practical reality is your success is either, you know, broadened or restricted based on whoever you're kind of working with. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, is the, the gallery and their, and their resources, so to say. Absolutely. Yes. So you could be the best artist in the world in some little village in Africa, and it's only people in that village that ever get to see your art. But if you can uh, mint it on an NFT platform, the whole of the world can see what you've got on offer. And it's very liberating and it's really changed lives um, for many artists who, right. and, and I think a lot, you know, when we had lockdowns, when the pandemic was at its height, people felt really sort of isolated and you weren't allowed to go to a gallery or an exhibition to see art. And that's when a lot of people turned to the blockchain and thought, right. I can see, you know, oceans of art on these websites and I can own it. And also the thing for me, I mean, I like to have art on the walls, but nobody was visiting my house for two years because we were locked down. So oh, sure. you can't show off your latest purchase um, on the wall. But if you are on social media and say, hey, look at my wallet, look at what I bought. You know, and people can look at your Ethereum wallet or whatever, and they'll say, wow, look at your collection. It's really cool. And then I also started, um, I created a gallery in the metaverse for my artworks because I've got hundreds, right? Hundreds of pieces of art. Um, I've, I stopped counting at 200. <laughs> and I thought, and I, they're all on different wallets. I mean, I've got three wallets on OpenSea. I've got wallets on Nifty Gateway, Maker's Place other blockchains, whatever. And people ask me, you know, can I see your collection? And I, so I thought, right, I'm going to put my favourite ones into this gallery in Spatial, which is an Ethereum um, one. It's not, it's nothing to do with Meta or Zuckerberg. It, it just so happens that it's the one he's chosen. Um, so anyway, it was really difficult to cut it down to my favourite 70 NFTs. Right. Um, but I managed to do it. And now anybody can wander around in spatial and have a look at my gallery. And also if it's an artist I'm working with through Etiverse, I could put on an exhibition of their art. We could do a party, we could get a DJ. You know, we could make this quite an event, just right. like in real life, but with people from all over the world attending. That's awesome. And if you could um, you know, provide some context to this, let's say hosting like an online art exhibition. How much would that cost versus, let's say, having to do this 
you know, um, in real life, you know, um, with all the traditional trappings of, of such, like how much money does one save doing this right. in, you know, let's say, you know, in Web3, in this NFT metaverse space versus having to try to organize this in real mm -hmm. life, contacting, marketing, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, so, right, so hanging an NFT on a wall in a virtual gallery will take you a couple of minutes, you know, so that's a lot that's a lot right. easier than hammering nails into the wall. I, oh, I hate hanging pictures because you I like them all to be the same height and stuff. It's a nightmare. Right. Yeah, so it's always just, a little off, yeah. yeah. You're just dragging it across the screen. It's really easy to actually right. hit out a gallery. A lot of the galleries you can get for free, so spatial, um, and you can pay to upgrade and get like a big super duper gallery but lots of these um, metaverses they give you free galleries because they want people they want traffic you know um, or you could buy a plot of land in the likes of Decentraland, Cryptovoxels, the Sandbox and you're maybe looking at about three ETH for a, for a plot of land right. but then if you know people they might be delighted to loan you their plot of land or their gallery for you to do your exhibition because maybe they've got something in it for them that they can advertise something that they're trying to sell right. so there's lots of ways like that and then you know you just have to advertise it on social media and they will come so you know you're saving a fortune now if you were a traditional physical gallery you might want to take 50 percent of sales of any artworks you know but in sort of NFT land, like the platforms that are hosting the art, they only take like say 10%. So a lot more money is going into the creator's pocket. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that, uh, see that dynamic for, you know, for sure. And, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to art galleries and, you know, kind of creating these type of events, I guess this is more of a, actually, I think this next question kind of goes into the more the technical aspects and almost philosophical. Do the algorithms, do you, or is there any information um, as far as the algorithms on, let's say, OpenSea, Rarible, and related, are these algorithms also, are they reinforcing biases? Are they essentially pushing certain types of traffic into the user's screen as as well, because I'll have to say, like, sometimes I'll use some of these NFT websites and, you know, um, and I guess they push certain artists or certain type of pieces of art to the screen. And I'm like, I have no idea why this is why I'm looking at this. And like some of this stuff kind of, you know, looks like garbage. Some of the art looks great, though, you know, so like um, and, and I do notice like the more I use the site, I, I think the. Um, the more, I guess you could say, filtered perhaps, um, as far as like the traffic or the or uh, the artist kind of comes to my comes to my screen as as well. You know, I think about these things sometimes, so I'm kind of uh, wanted to know what your thoughts were. Yeah, that's really interesting. So a lot of these uh, NFT marketplaces, they're quite web too, really. Although, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they've got sure. somebody that owns the company. You know, although your art's going on the blockchain, the, the right. actual sort of makeup of the company is very much structured like a Web2 idea. And so, yes, a lot of the marketplaces have curators, right, who will decide 
mean, I've been a curator myself, um, and it's good right. fun. And the bias comes in. I would tend to favour women artists. Right. Well, and that's okay. Um, but yeah, so you sometimes have some foul play. There was an instance on Open Sea a while back where there was a, you know, like kind of insider trading. So somebody in the platform would like say, mm, right, I'm going to buy a few of this artist's NFTs and yep. then I'm going to feature them on the homepage so oh, that okay. everybody buys them and I can flip them. So right. there's all these kind of dodgy things going on. I mean, Rareable sort of prides itself on not being curated, but then I think they brought in a curation feature. So they're never going to be fully um, open with you about how the algorithm is decided, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of rubbish that is being thrown at us going, buy this, buy this. Um, it's right. not necessarily the best uh, investment. Right. You know, uh, you know, because I, I would like I said, I would like to think that some of the better artists or some of the best art, um, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff can objectively, you know, speak for itself. And certainly there's a fair amount of you said like kind of rubbish out there. And somehow there is an undeserved amount of circulation or popularity with, you know, with, uh, you know, some of those collections themselves. And I'll have to say I've had on my show many numerous um you know women you know nft artists who are in this space you know hustling putting together great collections putting together newer stuff and you know just constantly grinding you know to build essentially that brand and build you know that you know i guess you could say that uh that legacy of of, of great art and you know i think you know to an extent many of them have echoed um a lot of these concerns that you and i have you know spoken about you know during this episode and like i said you know to this day i, I still kind of don't get it because my feeling is this if it's good art it's good art it, it shouldn't matter you know who the identity is who the person is and listen you know in, in in fact you know we should have a bit more diversity because otherwise we get echo chambers and i think if we get echo chambers we get stagnation you know listen the board api club is great but you don't want to deal with a hundred doppelgangers of that either you know, so to say, because that's really going to dilute art, so to say. Yeah. So I, I think it's, I think it benefits all of us to really explore what else is out there and kind of introduce different, different artists, different perspectives, different, you know, collections. It seems like, I don't know if this is a human uh, tendency. I don't know if this is a cultural tendency, but people like to, you know, cloister themselves, you know, you know, so to say, um, and I think if that ends up being the trend, um, that will undermine and dilute, you know, the NFT market, you know, generally speaking as well. And I think like anything, you know, you need fresh talent, you know, you, you need to, uh, you know, introduce and give those people a, a platform to really compete and, and shine. I mean, listen, I think we could even look at like Hollywood, you know, whoever the A-list actors and actresses are, are they really the best actors and actresses in the world? I don't think so. I think there's a whole lot of undiscovered talent out there that unfortunately we may not ever know about, you know, so to say. But I think because you have like systems, you have bureaucracy, you have biases, you have nepotism, you know, certain people I think are just going to kind of keep, are going to kind of receive an edge that let's say competitor, other competitors otherwise just might not get. And I'd like to think in Web3, um, 
you know, because the theme is being decentralized, so to say, that is kind of what we should uh, all strive for. And I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that, like with some of those other, you can say, you know, NFT art websites, they are kind of run by, run like Web2 companies. And there's a lot of uh, evidence and a lot of information out there that definitely suggests that too. Yeah. And in fact, one of the, um, the first NFT marketplaces, Known Origin, which was a very reputable place in, based in the UK, they just yeah. got bought by eBay. Okay, well, <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we were trying I mean, to get away from these, like the big Amazons, Facebooks of the world. And then, you know, all these, these big guys are just buying up all the, the little platforms. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, absolutely, and I think, uh, I, I mean, listen. On one hand, I, I mean, listen. If if you have the resources, I'm not going to stand in somebody's way to conduct business. But I, I, I think to the larger theme and the larger point of NFT artists and kind of promoting a wider array of artists, and you could say a higher degree of art and collections. You know, it, unfortunately, it, it seems like it may go down kind of the typical, I don't know, Web 2 route of uh, business as usual, you know, in, in, yeah. in that regard. That's what that's what it kind of looks like. I know. I know. I mean, hopefully the, the metaverse um, will fix that because nobody owns the metaverse, right? There's one metaverse. Right. Uh, although you may access it through different platforms like the Sandbox or Decentraland or whatever, but I mean, it gives people an opportunity to, you know, present themselves the way they want. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a white woman, okay, and I can choose to be a white woman as my avatar, or I could choose to be a dinosaur as my avatar, sure. or a chicken or anything, you know. Um, and so people who have maybe been, you know, prejudiced against before because of their colour or their sexuality or their age or their sure. weight or anything, they can choose to look like whatever they want if they're, you know, doing business in the metaverse and they can choose whatever name they want. Right. So it's trying to level the playing field a bit. And what I'm trying to do, so um, I've just written a white paper called diversity and inclusion in the metaverse and it's yeah. all about i'm trying to educate you know developers builders um or you know web 2 organizations and brands to think right you know web 2 we made mistakes but now right. we've got an opportunity to get things right so let's think about all the requirements up front think about who is the audience so it could include you know marginalized groups like people of color, uh, people with disabilities who've been kind of excluded from a lot of internet things in Web2. I mean, there's right. like 1.2 billion disabled people around the world. So right. that's quite a big minority of excluded people. Um, and people in wheelchairs get a real sense of freedom from you know online experiences and they were some of the first people to use VR headsets and they found yeah. pain relief. So I think there's going to be a merging of gaming and retail, digital fashions becoming big. So, you know, you buy a pair of sneakers for real life and then your avatar has those same sneakers when you're going around right. the, the metaverse. If you want to sort of try on clothes before you buy them, get them on your avatar, you know, 3D, see what you look like. There's right. so much possibility. 
but we need to make sure that all the development teams are not, dare I say it, white men. <laughs> we need to get women in there, we need to get people of colour, we need to get LGBTQ+, and people with disabilities, you know, we need to get colourblind people, people who can't use a mouse. What are their requirements for Web3 and the metaverse? And if we could just think about these and build them in up front, it'd be a lot cheaper than having to retrofit it um, later on. Mm. Yeah. And, and how do you how do you get more, I guess you could say, players, companies, thought leaders, or you know, just otherwise participants in this space to really move more towards that, you know, I guess that more inclusive, you know, more equitable, you know, type of future. I mean, let, let me let's say hypothetically, if I was to start an NFT company tomorrow and all I did was hire other men like myself from New Jersey, New York, people who just kind of eat at the same places, like the same sports teams and stuff like that. You know, on one hand, you know, you could say at first glance, okay, there's going to be good chemistry here. But on the other hand, I think there's going to be a lot of blind spots that are going to come about. And I think, let's say, myself and none of the hypothetical cohorts I've described may end up either realizing that or even be willing, so willing to even express it. Because I think it's kind of like this. Uh, I think if you end up hiring people who are like your friends or people that you do like, on one hand, I think maybe to an extent the chemistry is good. But at the other hand, I think people are also less willing to disagree. Because I think it's kind of like, like, oh, okay, we're all buddies. We're all friends here. You know, I don't want to burn bridges with anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. But at the same time, too, I, I think it's kind of like if you are conscious of some sort of issue or problem and you see that maybe the team is walking towards it or gravitating towards it, I think a lot of people are just going to keep their mouth shut because they kind of want to keep, you know, keep the peace, so to say. And I think mm -hmm. also, and I think also too, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a self-defeating business model. Ultimately, if you just have a very homogenous thinking, homogenous uh, interest type of, uh, you know, type of group. I mean, I think it, I think history would even show that some of the most uh, diverse, uh, some of the most dynamic organizations on, on Earth proved formidable. I mean, listen, uh, I'm a huge history nerd. Uh, if you look at the Roman Empire and you look at the Roman legions, probably only about a third were actually Roman. All the other, you could say the cavalry, the infantry, the artillery, they were from as far north as Scotland and northern England. They were from as far south as Ethiopia. They were from as far east as, as Iran. You know, they had essentially like horse archers from like the Middle East and Central Asia. You essentially had infantry, um, you know, from, you know, Celtics, from essentially Celtic groups in England and Scotland and, you know, parts of Wales. And then, you know, each of these groups kind of brought like a different you know, element, so to say. And like I said, you know, if anybody who loves history thought the Roman Empire was only built by Romans, you got another thing coming. In fact, uh, much of the army and much of that structure was from contributions from people of, uh, you know, all other, you know, different backgrounds and, you know, different, you know, different areas. And in fact, you know, even gladiator fights too, almost half of them were actually performed by female gladiators as, as well. So that's, I think that's kind of another overlooked fact. And I think we can all agree that gladiators fights 
are, are especially brutal, inhumane, and <laughs> certainly probably a war, certainly a war crime in of themselves, if you know measured yeah. measured to today. But if you you know if you can recall movies like Gladiator and you know Spartacus and things like that, you know if you saw like the you know the barbarians with the the armor and they're fighting you know wild animals or other yeah. or you could say other gladiators, almost half of those fights were actually also done by women. So if people, so if, if you were to look at why were gladiator fights successful in that, in that, you know, you could say era of time, because you didn't know what you were going to be viewing in actually really? a lot of those gladiator fights. Yeah, absolutely. So they had, uh, they had essentially, you know, women from like Germania and from, you know, England and Scotland, and they had, you know, tiger, oh, not tigers, they had lions and they had wolves and they had bears and stuff like that. Yeah. So. I know it's kind of a weird example, but I, I guess you could say part of the reason why gladiator fights were successful was because it was diverse. You didn't really know as a viewer or as a uh, patron what you were going to perhaps see. And I think relating that to the Roman army, like I said, um, the contributions and I guess you could say the success from a historical point of view was actually from the ability to draw talents um, either, you know, exotic, foreign, unknown, relatively unknown talents from everywhere. Yeah. And that kind of led to the ability to adapt to yeah. many, many different types of enemies, many different types of landscapes, many different types of, um, you know, uh, context, you know, you know, so to say. Uh, and like I said, I'm a huge history nerd. Like, so the Romans were historically only good at infantry. But as warfare got more and more advanced, Enemies got more and more diverse. You need to have soldiers who were good on horseback, so to say. Where yeah. did you go for that? You went to Central Asia. You even went to the frontiers of Northern England and Ireland, Northern England and Scotland, where a lot of the Celts were actually good at riding horses and actually metalworking. And in fact, part of the reason why Roman swords were very good is because they adopted a lot of the Celtic, uh, you could say, uh, metalworking techniques, so to say. So, yeah. like I said, I could talk about that all day, but, you know, if I would say to anybody, if you need to know why there's a huge need to have more inclusion, diversity, um, you know, more of a mix of different talents, uh, history would certainly dictate uh, and, and reinforce, you know, reinforce that point. If you want to be competitive in the greater scheme of things, if you want to be able to scale in the greater scheme of things, you have to go outside your own little ecosystem because you may be overlooking a lot of just otherwise great talent out there. You might not otherwise just know. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited that you're um, so into history. I've actually spent the weekend um, at a medieval castle in Scotland, Stirling, oh, wow. Stirling Castle. Oh, biggest... I've heard of that castle. I haven't yeah. been there, but um, oh, I've been amazing. to a few castles in, in England, though. Um, and yeah. I love all that stuff. So please, yeah. continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, th this castle had a party that lasted all weekend. It was called the Castle Party 2022. And this was oh, the nice. biggest NFT event of this year. So there's an artist, Trevor Jones, who um, he created, I've got it here, actually. He created a piece of art called the Bitcoin Angel, and uh, that's it there. It was a bit oh wow! And um, and it sold like he sold four thousand of them, and there was like three. He made three million dollars or something. And 
one of his collectors jokingly said, you should have a party for all your collectors in a castle. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, a year later, you know, cut a long story short, there were like over 300 um, NFT collectors and some NFT artists. We all got together at the weekend yep. um, and partied in an actual medieval castle. So wow. yeah, that's so and I wouldn't have been invited to that party if I didn't own that NFT. Um, so, you know, talk about NFTs with utility. My God, I've just been to a party in a castle. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, there's people in the car park driving Lamborghinis and stuff. It, it, this was mental, you know. And plus this this picture, which I just showed you, I got this free in the goodie bag. So this is I've now got this physical wow. signed thing uh, by the artist as well as owning the NFT. Yeah. So you know, so get yourself get yourself a Bitcoin angel NFT, anybody, um, and then you can come to a a party in a castle in another location in the world this time next year. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I mean, party in the castle plus you get to leave with some uh, some solid goodies as as well. That uh, you know, that's uh, that's certainly wonderful. And you know, as far as your projects, um, what are some of the other you know milestones? Um, and goals that you you know hope to achieve for the remainder of this year. Right. Yeah. So um, I want um, Gala Marissa's launch of her She Heals project to be a success um, because she she really deserves it. She's won countless awards, um, yeah. and I want the Lost Paradigms Twitter banner NFT project to sell out. So we've got ten thousand and one uh, banners. Um, some of them will right. be. Um, minted for free and um, claimed by cyber broker holders but I'm working very hard to build yeah. partnerships with other um, sort of alpha NFT projects it's like well we'll give some of your um, NFT holders like a giveaway to win an NFT and you can right. do the same for us and yeah so just basically building up a lot more connections helping a lot more people so myself and Laura we run these kind of weekly Twitter spaces, like ask me anything, what are your marketing challenges? And we get a whole bunch of artists and just general Web3 creators coming along and sharing their marketing challenges with us. And then we give them advice. So I just want to see that in this bear market that we're now in, um, people are busy creating and that once they're ready to launch once everyone's got money to spend again then we'll, we'll launch them and sell out their projects yeah and do you think that traditional art galleries i guess traditional brick and mortar art galleries do you think some of them are a little scared of these developments that <laughs> you know artists don't have to you know rely on either their patronage or their support otherwise to really you know launch these projects i mean hypothetically you know any anybody who has a great idea and has already made some great art pieces you can create an account at one of the major you know nft marketplaces and you know get to work kind of you know start putting your work start putting your artwork out there and kind of avoid a good chunk of overhead it seems Absolutely. So I think the art galleries are going to have to evolve. Do you remember like in the 80s when everyone had videotapes and you'd go to your videotape store and rent a video for oh, yeah. 
We used to have then, a store called Blockbuster. They were everywhere yeah, uh, yeah, you know, over here. Yeah. 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 And then Netflix came out and you, you didn't <laughs> well, okay, right. you had the videotape, but then you had the C D ROM DVD thing. Right, and yeah, DVDs. Um, yeah. And then you had Netflix and we don't have any sort of hardware anymore. You just stream it. So right. that's what's gonna happen with these physical art galleries. They're gonna have to buy these digital art frames that you would you know show your nft in so if you've got an animated nft then it's like a little video it's like having a, a smart tv and they're going right. to have to put these frames around their walls and you know sell nfts rather than right. selling the canvas paintings yeah and i have a question too um you know with traditional brick and mortar art galleries do you think a lot of this traditional bias also existed within them too because you know we covered web 2 and some of the biases and let's say not creating or not enabling kind of more diverse inclusive environments is that kind of the same deal with the traditional art world as well because i would imagine this as an outsider there has to be almost like these traditional almost aristocratic trappings in the art world. It's almost like the Medici's in like almost the middle ages, really supporting just a handful of people, um, you know, based on whatever, I guess, whatever their desires or interests were at the time. And there's probably not a huge stage to audition for those opportunities, so to say. Yeah, absolutely. So Web3 should be a decentralized marketplace with equal opportunities for everyone. Yeah. But, you know, this is real life and it's just not like that at all. So it's right. like anything, you know, not every little boy who wants to be a football player grows up to be a superstar football right. player. It's the same with artists. A lot yeah. of them are very good, but you're only going to get a handful of superstars. And right. Well, who is it who chooses who are the superstars? It's the rich whales with all the money to spend. So if if you buy an artist cheap and then you hype them up so that they're worth millions, then you've got an asset that's worth millions. It's no sure. different from crypto. It's like if, if you've bought Bitcoin, you're going to tell all your friends to buy Bitcoin because then the value of your investment goes up for when right. you sell. It's exactly right. the same. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and, and of course, you know, that definitely makes a tremendous amount of sense. And you know, and, and would it be fair to say that is there a bias towards male artists versus female artists in the traditional, you know, art world as well? And is and I was wondering, is there like any type of like you know data or research that supports because like I said, I would imagine that if you know web two and the trappings of web two are still very present here, I would imagine that maybe some of the way the traditional art world does things is probably a lot more antiquated, I, I would imagine, you know, so to say. I mean, there's still a lot of brick and mortar type of, uh, you know, art galleries. But like I said, my perception is it's very old, it's very aristocratic. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it does kind of seem like a, a bit of an old boys, uh, good old boys club type of thing. So uh, I was yeah. wondering if you've heard of anything from like some of the artists you work with about, you know, some of those experiences dealing with dealing with galleries and whatnot. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look back traditionally and you said to somebody, name five male artists and five female artists, right? And you can say, oh, well, there's Leonardo da Vinci, there's Renoir, sure. Picasso. Everybody can name at least five male right. artists, but they'd struggle to name any female artists. So 
That's a very got, good point. Like, is one that comes to mind. Right, yeah. One, one that's pointed out to people, they go, oh, yeah, I know her. And it's right. like that now as well. So if you ask about, you know, um, NFT artists, people will think Beeple, because he's the one who sold for a lot of money. Right. He sold um, one NFT for $69 million, you know. And it's like, well, you know, name a famous woman NFT artist. And people will probably say Paris Hilton. Which is really sad because, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I've got my thoughts on your celebrities getting into NFTs. Yeah. yeah, you know, she doesn't need the attention. She's already rich and famous. You know, right, don't right. Buy a poor woman's NFT, not a millionaire's NFT. <laughs> right, and I, I guess, I guess to that point, you know, if if Paris Hilton is like the name that's coming up, you don't want that to remove or dilute credibility of other women artists trying to go on as well. Because if that's, yeah. let's say if Paris Hilton is like the first known or popular NFT artist, uh, I do feel like artists, female artists coming after her, um, they're going to be pigeonholed in that same, in that same spot um, as, as Paris Hilton for better or for worse. And I think it's going to end up being for worse. So to say, you know, it's not like, um, Let's say if you have the male category and Beeple's there. Well, people can objectively say Beeple is a successful artist. Whether you like his art or not, like the numbers are there. But if you have Paris Hilton there, Paris Hilton is known for everything else but NFT art. So the fact of the matter is, it's like, you know, if, you, if she's going to be the flagship woman artist of that space, it is going to make, in my opinion, a harder, more uphill battle for other women artists to kind of throw their gauntlet into the ring and really, you know, compete. Because, A, um, I, I do think that even today, there's a lot of grifts that are associated with celebrities entering the NFT space based on things that have happened for the past mm. year and a half. So already there's that stigma. Also, um, I think as far as most people are concerned, Paris Hilton is not a serious artist, so to say. No. This, is a, this is an additional you know, maybe ribbon in her portfolio, so to say, it, you know, yeah. if, if anything. So yeah. people probably have that in mind as well. And I think with whatever art that is out there, I think some people are going to speculate, is she actually making that art? Or is this just people on her team doing this <laughs> on her behalf? And, and that is going to be the logical answer most yeah. people are going to, you know, come to. And also, if she's kind of the person speaking for that space, I don't think she's going to want to compete with a serious female artist in mm -hmm. the same space as her. So I think, I think it's just human nature. Um, yeah. You're not, you're going to probably want to quash um, any type of competition or perceived competition. So, you know, I, I think whether it's the algorithms or her resources, she's going to do what she's going to do to keep herself, yeah. in as much limelight as as possible so let's say if you do have the next frida Kahlo in this space it's going to be an uphill battle against somebody like paris hilton and yeah. unfortunately paris hilton nothing personal to her but i think based on her brand and based on how she's perceived it's going to make it harder for other female artists because this isn't like I said, this isn't Frida Kahlo. Let's say Frida Kahlo was, was alive. This yeah. isn't Frida Kahlo being the first flagship artist in this space. I think there's a lot of good that can come from that. But if you have essentially a reality star, among other things, in this space who 
is possibly doing a grift, according to maybe some people's perceptions, it's going to kind of be imputed, I think, to an extent mm-hmm. to a lot of other women artists who are trying to get in there. And how how are you not tainted or affected by that if you're, let's say, competing with her on OpenSea or something like that? Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Because, I mean, she has millions of social media followers. So right. she's got that marketing machine behind her that everything right. she does will turn to gold. And, you know, the women I'm working with have got, like, you know, 500 or 1,000 Twitter followers, you know, and it's it's just, like, a different world, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. But, you know, you know, of course, um, you know, I'm very I'm very bullish on this. I, I do think there's a tremendous amount of great, you know, women and, you know, uh, artists out there, people of color, disabled people and whatnot, who I think, I think, like anything in life, if you just have the right platform at the right time, um, you know, th- that could really make the difference in, in, in many things, you know, so to say. And I'm very happy to see what you're doing and trying to enable and encourage um, a greater diversity and really a larger talent pool of artists who otherwise would not have a forum to either participate or share their art. So I would just say on an ending note, you know, for people who are starting off their journey in this space, whether it's an NFTs in particular or, you know, anything in the metaverse or dApps or crypto, uh, what advice would you give to people? Because, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think nowadays people are willing to take a gamble on themselves more so than ever. Cause I think, you know, I, I guess with the overall chaos going, going around, but it's kind of hard to know where to start. Cause I get questions all the time, you know, in my, in my inbox, I, I really like blockchain. I really like web three. Where do I, where do I start? So I like uh, hearing insight and hearing kind of wisdom from other guests as far as uh, how they would answer that question too. Yeah. So right. Once you've done the, the obvious technical bits like setting up a wallet and um, yeah. i would say put yourself out there to build contact build a community right? right so you need to look at it not not what can people do for me what can i do for them so right. if you find a community that you're interested in like walker join walker and say right does anybody need any help with anything you're like these are right. my skills these are what i can bring i could you know retweet other people's tweets i could you know i've got a metaverse gallery here i could put on an exhibition you know just help out and if you build that trust with other people in the community they will have your back as well and so yep. when it comes to you marketing your project, it's not just you as one person doing all the work. Everybody in your community will pitch in and help you because you've already helped them. Right. And Web3, it's people don't understand when you say it's all about community. It's not customers, it's community. <laughs> so we do things to help each other out that might not end up in a money transaction, but you're building up your sort of social value your social credibility so even if you've not you know started the artwork yet start with the community start the networking because i have a lot of artists come to me and they say right i've built this collection i want to launch it in two weeks can you do your marketing magic and i'll say right well how big's your community oh about 50 people i was like well no (laughs) you can (laughs) increase that by quite a lot or it's going to be a flop when you launch and they just don't realize that 
although the, you know, creating art is really hard I and mean, it's something I couldn't sure. do, but you know, marketing is really hard as well. And you can't start early enough building that is, those relationships. <laughs> that is very well said. This actually reminds me of something um, somebody else said. Nowadays, people don't want to be sold to, so to say. Uh, you know, this was, I think this was actually at a conference that I spoke at, but one of the, one of the guest speakers mentioned this. This was about startups and kind of building, I guess you could say building what's going to be your future client base or your future customers. One of the things that was mentioned that in this day and age compared to, you know, those of past people don't want to be sold to anymore. People actually want to have some sort of relationship first before, you know, I guess you could say doing business. And you see that a lot with blockchain and in crypto, uh, all of the successful projects, they have a strong community behind them. You know, you can't, you know, I guess you can say in many ways, you can't go create a successful or a great product or service and kind of exist in a vacuum, in, 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 you know, in of itself. You know, you really actually have to gain people's trust. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's almost a necessity. It's, it's a requirement nowadays. So, you know, what, what you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, made me think of that. And I think nowadays people do value trust as much as the product or, or service you're, you're trying to sell. So, you know, I, I, think, you've, I think you've definitely left a, a lot of solid points for people to uh, ponder about this week. So, Charmaine, I have to say it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show today and, you know, learning about, you know, learning about your, you know, project as well. And I think, you know, to better enrich this space, you know, more people are going to have to have the forum. They're going to have to have the stage to, you know, compete, you know, and, you know, I think we can all know this, like life isn't fair. And, and I think life comes at us, you know, in, in different ways, different curveballs, different, you know, different, you know, different opportunities. But I, I do think if, if, if in our individual capacity, we can make things easier for other people and for ourselves, I think it really makes a better world, so to say. And I think what you're doing here um these are going to be the type of mechanisms these are going to be the type of wells that are going to bring forth the next you know frida kalos you know of the you know of the world as as well and you know i'll tell you this i mean i have a young son he's five years old but i would say if i have a if i did have a daughter i certainly would want her to feel that she's on the same footing to compete and to shine you know just like you know just like anybody you know, just like anybody else. And I think if, you know, we can give people kind of that peace of mind, you come here, you can kind of, you know, shoot your shot, throw your haymaker in the ring, you have a chance to compete. I think that's, I think that is a perfect starting point. And I think for many, that's good enough to, you know, be courageous and, you know, put themselves out there and doing it. So, you know, again, Charmaine, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for you know sharing this project. I'm very much looking forward to seeing which artists you know yeah. emerge from you know from your project you know throughout the year. And you know, of course, uh, you know I'll be celebrating uh, you know all the all the success to be uh, coming forth from this as well. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Anytime, and have an awesome week. Keep me posted on things, you know, and of course, uh, you know, in a few months, I'd love to have you uh, come back on and 
perhaps we can pick up from here and and see uh, what has developed since. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Charmaine. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye.